Did you know Bridgestone developed a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials? Making a difference today for future generations. That's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta. Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1955, and would you like me to tell you the little story of right hand, left hand? P.O.D. With this hand, I grabbed a microphone. C.I.S.T. With this hand, I uploaded it to the internet. Podcast. That is a word that runs straight to the soul of man. The movie, Night of the Hunter. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the show where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best movies of all time and when we do, send them to outer space. We are in our villain series following the great performance by Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. We are talking about another seminal villain in cinema history, Robert Mitchum in the Night of the Hunter. We'll get to that in just a second. But Amy, any leftover thoughts from Fatal Attraction? It's been a while since we talked about it. It has stuck out to me. Every now and then we do the show and a certain movie I'll think about after our conversation. It's sort of like, oh, I want to almost have another conversation after our original conversation about it. And that has been one of those movies. Oh, I love that. What are you, what are you all boiling up on the inside to tell me? Well, I thought the one thing that I didn't really articulate that I wanted to was there's a quote where Glenn Close said a lot of people come up to her in the street and say like, oh my God, you saved my marriage. And what I think is really funny about that is, so you're saying that movie made my husband not cheat, but (laughs) it's not because they love me. It's because (laughs) they're afraid that they will cheat with Uh, like someone who is mentally deranged or someone who will try to like hurt their family, which to me just felt like (laughs) the perfect like eighties takeaway from this movie, which is like my lesson learned here is like, I'm, it's still all about self preservation. Like I'm just not doing this one thing because I don't want harm to come to me. Not that (laughs) like like I saw the damage it does to my family. That's like, 
the most ancient reason anybody does anything. Please don't send me to the fiery place where Glenn Close is going to kill all my pets. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, now I wonder whether or not we're going to see this Fatal Attraction reboot anyway with all the uh, hubbub going on over at HBO Max. There's a lot of... I mean, a lot of crazy stuff going on in the in the film space. Uh, but I got to yeah. tell you, I'm excited that DC has a 10-year plan. I hope it's different than the 10-year plan they announced just two years ago. <laughs> well, I, I had no idea until the head of HBO Max Discovery told me that as a woman, I don't really like HBO Max. Who knew? I'm stunned. I always thought it was one of my favorites. Um, I do like HBO Max, and I'm really bummed to see what's going on there And I'm also watching this, and the one thing I can't get out of my head is we had this big announcement uh, a couple weeks ago that TV shows and movies have been canceled or pulled and just shelved, mainly for tax purposes, but yet The Flash has yet to be canceled, and every day another thing comes out about Ezra Miller. Wow, this is the moment to just cut bait on The Flash movie why are we still keeping it alive? And I believe in one of the big uh, phone calls, they were like, you know what? We're we're very excited about The Flash. I'm like, why? <laughs> why? No, no, get rid of that one. By the time that movie comes out, people will be dead. I, I feel like there is something, that story is brewing in a bad way. Like that is every, like that is warning sign after warning sign after warning sign. I have to admit, I'm kind of sad that we might not ever get to see Leslie Grace's Batgirl because uh, yeah. I've, I really loved her in In the Heights. I thought she just had like so much charisma and so much energy. And I've been looking forward to seeing what she does next. And I feel like she put a lot of time into doing this movie instead of doing anything else, of course, because it's what you're supposed to do. And for it not to work out for her, I'm really bummed. That's where I'm sort of bummed. I, I want to make sure that she gets to show what else she can do in, in this world. I'm equally bummed because I really like the directors of Batgirl. They directed Bad Boys for Life, which I really, really liked. Uh, I will say it once again. The uh, villain in Bad Boys for Life is a witch, a straight up witch, and they make <laughs> it work and it's awesome. And I thought they what they did uh, with Miss Marvel on Disney Plus was really visually cool and fun. And I like that series. So to see... Those two directors who spent a lot of time also in pre-production, production and post, you know, have their, you know, their talents kind of not wasted because it was for something, but wasted in the fact that no one will be able to see it is a real bummer because I think they are firing on all thrusters at this point. Do you think we'll ever see Batgirl? I don't think we will. Because, really? yeah, only because it's a tax write-off. And the minute they sell it, they can't make it a tax write-off. And they can't sell a DC property to somebody else because they are the home of DC. So I think it's caught in this rock and a hard place. One of the things that was really crazy about uh, Human Giant that I found out uh, years later was because we didn't do a third season. We opted not to do a third season because of a few different reasons. And we were lumped in a category of shows our second season was that were um, put into a pile for their tax write-offs. And once you're put in that pile of tax write-offs, it's kind of really impossible to get it out because you are, you're basically saying, I can't make money on it. To take it out to make money on it 
is it just upsets everything. So I think that once it goes there for a tax write-off, it just dies there. Man. And then we're also like losing movies that have already been out, like the Soderbergh movie and then the Seth Rogen movie. It's like, I love uh, American Pickle. Wait, I don't even understand that. (laughs) I don't really understand it at all. I actually don't understand it in the slightest. And maybe part of my optimism that maybe there's a chance we'll see Batgirl is just because Warner Brothers and HBO Max have also proven to be the studio that like if enough people yell at them on the internet, they'll release the Snyder Cut. Well, that's old management. (laughs) Have you read that That article, by the way? Did you read that? Oh, my God. Oh, man. Oh, the Rolling Stone one that was sort of like really strongly implying that Zack Snyder was behind the fans. Yeah, it's a great article. And we probably will not be able to do it justice in just recapping it. But it's all about the manipulation of that campaign. I will say the thing that I'm most upset about in all of this, first of all, is that... uh, there has been really good content on HBO Max and I'm missing out on getting it. I like movies that come streaming. I like going to theater too, but I think there can be a middle ground. But to me, the thing that bums me out the most is it looks like we might miss out on Michael Keaton being brought back into the DCU. He was cut out of Aquaman. He was supposed to be in Batgirl. Right now, he's still in The Flash. But like I said we may never see that movie. I mean, if things keep on going the way they are, I I got to imagine that movie can't come out because you can't do a movie where you can't do press with your lead actor. It's just the craziest thing in the world to me that there could be a movie where Michael Keaton is Batman and they're like, nobody wants to see this. Not even talking about The Flash. I'm talking about Batgirl. That's just that's just very crazy to me. Well, at least we still have Harley Quinn, which is a great HBO Max uh, DC show, which is really fun and interesting and creative. And hopefully we'll get more. We'll get more. I don't know. I'm just, it's a weird time. Weird time. And the guy kicked Clint Eastwood off the lot. What's happening over there? It's just weird. Well, look, if there's one thing that we know, if you wrong Clint Eastwood, if you kick him off the lot, he's going to come back. And he's going to kick your ass. And maybe he'll bring like a monkey with him. I don't know. A Mack truck or maybe just a Grand Torino. He's coming back with some sort of vehicle and he's going to take down everybody. Like, watch out now. That's the new Clint Eastwood movie. You know, it's just call, uh, call it Zaslov. Just Clint Eastwood versus a studio exec. You know, I guess I'd rather watch that than one of his movies he's been making about how he just can't help having orgies all the time. <laughs> I was going to say, this right now is his orgy phase. He got kicked off the WB lot. He's having orgies <laughs> now, and then he's going to come back and uh, and take care of business. Um, well, Amy, you know, there's so much out there, and, and I think we need somebody to kind of sift through, kind of, you know, cull all the excess fat in the world, and there's no one better than a preacher like Robert Mitchum. And with that, oh Lord, please let me unspool it. The year is 1955. The first seatbelt laws are drafted. The first use of Velcro is documented. And the first Legos are built. Disneyland, McDonald's, and Coca-Cola in cans make their first appearances. And Martin Luther King Jr. leads the first major event of the U.S. Civil Rights Movement, a bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, following the arrest of Rosa Parks. The hot movies of the year include East of Eden, Guys and Dolls, Rebel Without a Cause, and today's film, The Night of the Hunter. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? And what was on that radio? (laughs) The Night of the Hunter. 
It is the one and only movie ever directed by the great actor, Charles Lawton, who may have also written much of the actual script of this movie, even though he insisted on giving credit to the famed writer James Agee. The movie is based on a novel, which was itself based on a real-life murderer from the Depression era who made all these women fall in love with him, and then he killed them. He killed some of their kids for some cash. Robert Mitchum plays the killer Reverend Harry Powell, who has love and hate tattooed on his knuckles. The Reverend, while he's in jail, meets a convicted thief and murderer, and after that man is executed, decides to go after the man's wife and children so he can steal the $10,000 that he left behind. The wife is Shelley Winters. The kids are Billy Chapin and Sally Jane Bryce as John and Pearl, and the great silent actress Lillian Gish figures into the plot in the third act as a truly kind woman who sees right through the preacher's Bible-quoting BS. Take a listen. Ben never told you he throwed it in the river, did he? I can hear you whispering, children, so I know you're down there. I can feel myself getting awful mad. Here is all the passion and suspense the heart-pounding warmth of the best-selling novel that gripped millions. Oh, wake up! Come on! Superb, unforgettable performances by an extraordinary array of talent. Figured I was gone, huh? Run. Hide in the staircase. Run quick! Ruby, shit! What do you want? I want them kids. I'm giving you to the count of three to get out of here, then I'm coming across the kitchen shooting you. The combined powers of Paul Gregory and Charles Lawton brought the Kane Mutiny Court Martial to Broadway. Now the screen receives that same creative, electrifying impact. The Night of the Hunter. Night of the Hunter was released on July 26, 1955, and audiences looked at this ambitious, gothic, stunning, strange, beautiful art movie and said... What the hell is this? I don't understand this at all. And Lawton was so crushed that he never, ever, ever made another movie, which is a huge loss for cinema. But at least he made this one, which from that bottomed out beginning has steadily risen in esteem, even being voted the number two movie of all time by Kaya's Cinema after they voted Citizen Kane number one, of course. Uh, but even at the time, people thought it was ahead of its time, which makes sense because it came out in a time where the pop culture was radically shifting and people were just disoriented and losing their minds anyways. The summer of 1955, right before this movie came out, this was the number one song on the Billboard charts. Oh, I actually do recognize that song. Yeah, totally. Jazzy, jazzy, jazzy. Then the month that Night of the Hunter opened in July, this took over. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. What is that right song? Yes, the first rock and roll song to ever hit number one on the charts. Which makes me think that if Marty McFly could have gone back to 1955, he would have looked at Night of the Hunter and he said, you guys, you're not going to the theaters, but your kids are going to love it. <laughs> you know, can we just talk for a second about what's going on in 1955? Because when you watch this movie, or at least the way that I watch this movie, it felt kind of timeless in a way that um, 
I didn't notice how out of step this film was for 1955. And I think that that's one of the big things that we probably are missing in a rewatch, especially if you watch it for the first time here, right? Like movies are in color, right? Uh, There is a sense of realism to movies in the 50s, right? Like it, it's pretty much what you're seeing is what you're getting, right? This idea of, I mean, I think this movie has some German expressionism, silent film technique here. It's, it's very much, you said it, an art film. So I imagine that it seems like a step backwards, but in a way it kind of feels like what Bogdanovich was doing with the last picture show, right? Like kind of going back a little bit to use techniques and tell a different story. And I think that both of those movies, Last Picture Show and this, exist, you know, or maybe age better because of this choice. But in the moment, especially for this movie, I don't know about for Last Picture Show because I've forgotten what we talked about there, but the it, it did not. Yeah, I mean, in the moment, if you just wander into a movie theater at random, you're probably seeing a brightly colored cowboy picture. You know, that's what's really selling or brightly colored, all sorts of things. You know, big stuff, spectacles. This is a moment where you're really... Guys and dolls to catch a thief. You know, Lady and the Tramp comes out this year. You know, this is, yeah, you're right. Big, big movies. Exactly. Davy Crockett. this, This is considered like the point when, you know, Hollywood is really, to kind of talk about what we were just talking about even, like competing so hard with television. This is like when it's really beginning, the teeth are out, the claws are out, and they're like, we're going to show you something you can't see on your tiny black and white television. And this movie, in many ways, is a depressing movie. And I think we've had depressing movies. We, You know, Rebel Without a Cause, also depressing. But I feel like this one is unnerving. I mean, it's a horror movie that feels more contemporary to our time now than it I then I can imagine it felt back then. That back then it must have been I mean, it, it almost like a, a snuff film. It's a movie where you know, we, we watch a man really trying to hunt down two children. He's a serial killer who violently kills women. It this is a it's a tough one to swallow, I imagine. Yeah, and this is a movie that, you know, is scaring audiences and terrifying the production code. Because, like, there's not a ton of blood in this movie, but there is still this rule where you're not supposed to do anything that looks like it might be making fun of religion. Which is a very, very, very serious rule. And so Joseph Breen, who has come up in the show a lot, you know, from, like, the 30s on, is, like, this heavy trying to, like, censor things. He got into a lot of back and fights with Charles Lawton about having this lead killer be a preacher. Which, I will say, is actually kind of invented for the novel. Like the actual killer who inspired this movie, his name was Harry Powers. And his whole thing was that he pretended to be like a rich businessman. He pretended to be like this Oklahoma oil man. And um, he would put letters in newspapers asking for women to write to him. Actually, I found one of his posts that he would use. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. All right. This is his ad that he would use to lure victims. Wealthy widower worth $150,000, this is in 1931, um, with income from $400 to $3,000 per month, civil engineer, and a very fine-looking man of 38 writes, my business enterprises prevent me from making many social friends. I am therefore unable to make the acquaintance of the right kind of woman. As my properties are located throughout the Middle West, I believe I will sell there, settle there when married. I am an elk and a mason. 
own a beautiful 10-room house, completely furnished. My wife would have her own car and plenty of spending money, but she must be a strictly one-woman man. I would not tolerate infidelity. And this ad went out. He got- Wow. Like, of the there's Postman records of this. He got between like 10 and 20 letters a day from women all across America. And he was only just getting underway with the actual murdering part of it. Like, he killed two women and three kids by pretending to be their future husband. Uh, when he got caught- And like we see in this movie, lynch mobs come for him. A lynch mob of like 4,000 people came from him, which made massive news. And then he was hanged in 1932. So he inspired this, but he was not religious. And that was something added by the guy who made a novel about it, Davis Grubb. He really wanted to add in this religious bit because he had grown up around like his, um, a preacher. One of his best friends was a preacher's son. And growing up, this minister was always beating his best friend. He was beating him so badly that his friend lived in a tree house because his dad couldn't climb the tree. And he, you know, having lived through the depression, he wanted to do a book that talked about this and talked about like how women held the country together during the depression. And Charles Lawton, you know, kind of really ran with this. He was like, yeah, yeah. Like he found religion to be a bit of a boogeyman. So he wanted to make a story that he felt like had this real point about like, who we trust and who we don't just because they can quote the right thing. And this terrified the censorship board, terrified them. Like Breen wrote to Lawton, you know, that this is in violation of the production code. It portrays a minister of religion as a murderer, as well as some kind of sex maniac. He said it's necessary to change his vocation entirely to get away from any flavor of religious hypocrisy. And he just kept making him strip and try to strip away this idea that he was a preacher uh, because he was worried that it would, quote, leave the impression with millions of theater goers that the Lord condones killing for money. And so this, like right here, even more than like I kill kids, was like terrifying to the people who were releasing this movie. And it's interesting that the way Lawton gets around it is being like, fine, 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 fine. This killer is lying about being a preacher. But what he's not lying about is he is still deeply religious. I mean, this guy, maybe he doesn't technically have like an actual cloth around his neck. Maybe he hasn't been ordained. But when Robert Mitchum talks to God in this movie, I believe that he believes that he's talking to God. I still believe that he's a religious man. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he feels... Like, he believes his own bullshit. It's not like he's a liar and putting this on as a disguise. Absolutely not. I mean, like, here, like this scene in the beginning. Lord, I am tired. Sometimes I wonder if you really understand. Not that you mind the killings. Your book is full of killings. But there are things you do hate, Lord. Perfume-smelling things, lacy things, things with curly hair. And isn't that terrifying? I mean, it's funny because it's such a technicality. It's like, oh, well, oh, you know. Right, he's not ordained, but he is religious, right? Like that's, and, and, and you could argue a lot of people do things in the Lord's name that are things that are incredibly violent because they feel they must do this to cleanse the world, right? And, th- and this is this idea of being like a zealot, you know, and, and this idea that he isn't using it to manipulate, I think makes it a scarier film. I right? totally like, agree. Like, like, as anybody could pretend to be a preacher, we have a million movies about fake preachers, 
but an actually religious man who's apologizing to God because he can't kill enough burlesque dancers. Yeah. Like, man, I sure wish I could kill more burlesque dancers for you, God. Like, what? Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta. Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Let me talk to you for a second about Robert Mitchum, because... When I think about Robert Mitchum, you know, there's an energy around him, or at least when I grew up, like he's a renowned, established actor. But in my research on him, I kind of found that he was an actor that took like shitty movies and tried to be the best he could. But he wasn't this revered person that we now know or that we hold him to a standard of. You know, currently, I think back in the 50s, he was not schlock. I don't know. Can you kind of help me fill that in a little bit? A little bit. I mean, he he could be polarizing because his whole thing was he would go around Hollywood being like, acting is dumb or more like acting is easy. People are like, I study Stanislavski. And he's like, I just show up. I don't know why you make it so hard. And they're like, does he just not take any of this seriously? Like, what is his deal? And he was pretty blunt about like, if you're just paying me to like be in this movie because you want my name in this movie, cool. You'll have my body. I'll show up. I'll walk through your cowboy picture, but you have to interest me if you want me to give an interested performance. Like, oh wow. So he would really, you know, he would really sleepwalk through things. Some, you know, the way that like I would accuse Bruce Willis of doing, he had a touch of that. Sometimes he would turn it on. Sometimes he would turn it off. So that's really interesting because I imagine that Lawton definitely interested him in this movie because he he is giving a like I can't imagine anyone else playing this role at this time. Like he's kind of perfect for it. He brings, you know, this look to him in his voice, the way he can kind of be a villain or a good guy. Like he he can walk that line really easily and the character is so complex. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure, for sure. Because also part of where it dovetails nicely with Mitchum is that he had a bit of a, he had a deserved bad boy reputation. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a guy who, even though he was a a big star, he was fairly open about being high all the time. Like he actually, even before this in the 1940s, had spent 43 days in prison for pot possession. And so he had a bit of a reputation, um, enough of a reputation that like when he was on the phone with Charles Lawton and Charles Lawton was describing this character, he was like, he's a... Charles Lawton called him a, quote, diabolical shit. Mitchum said, present, because he thought that would be super, super funny. And Lawton was like, okay, yeah, this is the guy. Which meant that he was not the easiest on set 
all of the time. Like one of the famous stories about the making of this movie is that he got into a little bit of a tiff with the producer. There's lots of different versions of what they were fighting about. One of the fights is that he showed is that Robert Mitchum was too drunk to go on camera. And so when they told him that his eyes were too puffy to act that day and they were just going to call it, he got mad. Another version of it is that he just showed up late and they were mad at him and he tried to show them who was boss. Whatever the case is, Robert Mitchum uh, took out his dick on set and then like peed into the producer's radiator is usually what they say. Sometimes they say front seat of his Cadillac. Whoa. Um, peed in the car. And then went on with the show and began to act. I mean, it is definitely clear that he peed in the man's car. Like, this is one of the stories that I believe is true. There's another story that I'm not sure I totally believe is true, where the producer said that he invited Mitchum to a party at his house. And when Robert Mitchum showed up, he took off all of his clothes, covered himself in ketchup and said, I am a hamburger. Wow. Wow. Yeah, this story was out there. Robert Mitchum sued, but people said that he sued because it actually was a story that he would tell people, but the story was that he just put it on his dick and he said, why don't you eat it? But that the newspaper didn't want to say that because that's really intense. (laughs) Uh, So they said, I'm a hamburger, which is really ridiculous. And he he sued. Now, talk to me about this screenplay because there's a lot of debate about who actually wrote it? The screenplay is written by James Agee, but it seems to me that Lawton, who comes from theater, and one of the reasons why he said he never directed another film was because he liked the idea that theater was this living thing where he's able to change lines and change performances, you know, every given night. It feels to me, from everything that I've read and seen, that he really got his hands into this script, and probably with Mitchum as well, and and tore it up and and pushed in these different directions uh, and to get this movie that we actually got. I mean, there's a lot of visual cues that aren't in the script. Like, there are a lot of things that we see, nightmare imagery, just these shots that I, I was kind of even surprised how they got some of the shots. I want to get into the cinematography of it in a little bit, but just from a scripting point of view, it's not really just a James Agee script, right? Yeah, kind of the story of it is, is that A.G., like Mitchum, was also drinking a lot in the 50s. Man, the people just seem to drink all the time in the 50s. I'm what always really caught off guard by this. I'm just like, man, every movie from the 50s, it's just like, would you like your 12th martini? And women are just <laughs> handling their martinis. And I'm like, how, how the hell did everybody in the 50s just stay alive? Right. But yeah, A.G. was very sick with alcoholism and he was writing the script and vomiting while he wrote the script. And he wrote a script that was basically a novel. Some people at the time referred to it as a phone book. It was three times longer than a script should be. And then he was too sick to really work on it. So the story is that it, um, Lawton had to take this phone book and then like cut it into something he could actually film within just a couple of weeks. And that AG pretty much died right after that. Like he dies before the movie is out. And so Lawton, even though he was really frustrated working with AG, I think like out of a sense of honor, wanted him to have this last film credit. Like he refused to take screen credit for it at all, even though like AG even asked him to say like he had helped write it. Oh, wow. So I thought it was actually a little bit more adversarial. Okay, that's really interesting. I mean, I don't think he liked being around him. Okay. I think think, like AG wasn't ever that interested into it. And so- they would, you know, go meet with like Lillian Gish, for example, and talk to her about the role. 
And only Lawton would do any of the talking and AG would just be sitting there getting really, really drunk. And I think he was like, oh, this guy. Uh, I really care about this and this guy doesn't care about this at all. That said, we should actually mention, since we're talking about Lawton all the time, as we should in this, we've seen Lawton before uh, doing this podcast. Um, Yes. Yeah. In his work as an actor, we saw Lawton in Spartacus, where he played the Roman senator Gracchus, who has, I think, a little bit of this vibe that we even see in this film. He's a little bit uh, sarcastic, cynical, unsentimental about uh, the way society works. No, 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 no. Keep the chain. Give it to your wife. May the gods adore you. Only through your prayers, Fimbria. Let's make an old-fashioned sacrifice for glamorous success. I thought you had reservations about the gods. Privately, I believe in none of them. Neither do you. Publicly, I believe in them all. Greetings, Marcus Claudius Flavius. He hasn't made Spartacus yet, actually. He'll make that movie in five years. But he was already hugely famous. He'd won an Oscar for playing Henry VIII. He was married to Elsa Lancaster, you know, Bride of Frankenstein. They were mm-hmm. married for many, many years. Famous screen actor, did acting courses out here, taught Shakespeare, was known for being such a good voice and delivery machine that he had done a whole tour just reading the Bible to people. Even though he wasn't religious, he read the Bible so well that it was like this really successful tour. And, you know, making this kind of remarkable, he was an actor who wasn't blessed to look like Robert Mitchum. You know, he said that he felt like he looked like the backside of an elephant, um, was his own quote about himself. He had a lot of self-consciousness about, like, his body. He had a hunchback. He wore padding so you couldn't see his hunchback as well. Um, he had a lot of complicated things, but he was just and so And this is mad- why people drink. And this is why people drink. <laughs> um, but, yeah, he just had just talent uh, that, like, kind of, bested all of his insecurities. Um, if you want to hear him read, by the way, he actually did a little bit of a reading of the book of Night of, Hunt- Night of the Hunter, which he released as an album when the movie came out. Preacher was not a bad sort. Preacher was a man of the Lord at heart. You see his hands. Look at the fingers, the tattooed fingers. The fingers of the left hand spell H-A-T-E-8. And those of the right hand spell L-O-V-E, love. No, preacher is a man of holiness. So that's Lawton. Fascinating, fascinating, fascinating guy who took this movie really, really seriously. He wanted to make something amazing. Well, I think he did, and I think he did that in many different ways besides the casting, also his cinematographer. Now, you were talking a little bit about his uh, negative body image. And I thought this is so funny. I was reading about Stanley Cortez, who is the cinematographer of this film. And uh, and this is apparently how their first meeting went. Um, so Lawton says to Stanley Cortez, so you're the new cinematographer to solve our complex photographic problems. Well, I'm very happy to meet you, you big bastard. And then Stanley Cortez responded to him by saying, well, I'm very happy to meet you, you fat SOB. Whoa. <laughs> and so they became, they had a, uh, you know, a very fun uh, relationship. And it was a, you know, relationship of mutual respect. And, you know, we're at land for, uh, you know, many years. Um, but, you know, this movie from, like, really is a joy to watch. I mean, if every frame 
is just stylized and very interesting. We talk about Caligari, like, and I think about this movie in Caligari similarly because of the nightmare imagery that's in this. this. This is a movie about a villain chasing down two kids, right? And I think you're constantly seeing this movie through the eyes of these kids. Like, it's scary. It's scary no matter what, but it's scarier, you know, with kids on the run. Like, they can't escape him. You feel like they're caught, you know, whether it's... And these are the images that we see, like, them caught in a spider web. Or, uh, you know, maybe there's a this, you know, an overhead shot uh, of a room or a wide shot of a room where, you know, it looks like a crypt and it also looks like a cathedral. Like, he's foreshadowing and every image is doing more work than any exposition can do. Like it, it, it is giving you a sense of unease throughout. And really, I think heightening Robert Mitchum's villainy because it makes it more, the whole movie's scary. There's no, there's no refuge in it until really like the third act. Yeah. I mean, the way that he films Robert Mitchum, it's like he finds shadows on Robert Mitchum's face that you didn't know a human face even had shadows there. Mm-hmm. Like his whole face looks like an expressionist noir set, you know, shadows hiding in his dimples and under his eyes and in his cheekbones. The way that he uses him to make you feel claustrophobic, like when Mitchum announces to um, John in the hallway that he's going to marry his mom, you know, he like kind of crouches over him. The hallway looks so tiny. He's leaning over this kid. There's shadows hemming him in from all directions. Or when Mitchum starts like walking towards the house in that one scene. Yeah. And they use um, like an iris effect, like an old school D.W. Griffith, you know, black circle going towards the center of the thing. And it just makes you feel like dark shadows are closing in around you wherever Robert Mitchum walks. I mean, it's so evocative. And yeah, like it felt to people at the time like, oh, are we doing this musty old technique again? Like, really? We're bringing out this German expressionism shadows? But it works so well in this movie because it just feels like like the darkest fairy tale. It, it feels like a dark fairy tale. It feels like a dark Greek movie about like kids and Zeus and everybody getting stabbed. And that's why I kind of disagree with it as being a noir because it, it, like, yes, it's black and white. And I think that it's a very easy thing to see anything with shadows is noir. But I find this to be more in the camp of expressionism than noir. And I, I th- you know, and I think that they're using these techniques for a couple of reasons. They need to get as much done as possible. This movie was shot in 36 days, you know, and at at a time where it should have been double that, you know, so they are moving at a quick clip and they have to show things differently. I mean, I I was blown away by the fact that there's that sequence um, where uh, like Powell's riding the horse in the distance, right? And that's a, a dwarf on a pony, but they filmed it in false perspective. You know, they're doing these old school tricks. They've, they, you know, cinema had advanced or American cinema had advanced past this at that point. And they were kind of pulling it back to, I think being more creative made this movie way more interesting visually. And in a way, I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Like it makes it timeless because it doesn't look real. Like this is not a a real town. This feels like a set. Everything kind of feels like a set, but then it's mixed in with real images and you're, you're constantly being pulled in and out of these worlds. But it, to me, it kind of feels perfect. It feels like it's captured this version of Americana 
rather than like what happened in 1955, like or or during when I guess this true story happened. Yeah, it feels it feels wrong, right? Like it feels like a nightmare. Like that yeah. scene that you're talking about of the kids in the barn, you know, the the sky behind them. I mean, first you have that little lovely bit of like seeing the moon shrink back into the sky and those three mm-hmm. little clips, which is just like such a fanciful touch. But then you hear him singing. He's like so flat against this like flat white sky that it looks like almost a shadow puppet. It looks otherworldly. And then the little kid is like, he don't never sleep. And you're just like, yeah, this, it, it makes Mitchum seem like some sort of evil spirit from beyond, something that isn't human. Because it does, it doesn't make any visual sense. It doesn't make any logical sense how he's still alive. And if this, if this was done in like a more natural tone, you'd be like, "This is bullshit." Obviously, Robert Mitchum has to sleep. I don't buy that he's up right now. I don't buy that he's singing. I don't right. buy that he would just like come across these kids in the barn. But that unreality, you're like terrified. Like, is he just going to keep coming after you forever? Even though he moves sometimes, like when he's running up the stairs after them in the basement, when they try to lock him into the basement, he's got his arms out, you know, like Frankenstein. He looks like some sort of old creepy monster. Or even when he's like in the room killing um, Shelley Winters, who I definitely want to talk about for a long time. You know, he's holding himself like, he's holding himself like a Caligari character there. He's kind of twisted. He's reaching up at the sky. She looks like she's trying to be, you know, Dracula. Her arms are all stiff around her neck. Like it is so emotional because it just because it's so surreal when tillamook ice cream beckons you to the freezer aisle which irresistibly creamy flavor do you choose while you're thinking try not to fuck up the glass tillamook ice cream extraordinary dairy Hey everyone, this is Gil Ozeri. You may know me as the guy who eats food over a garbage can, or my wife's cute little companion with the ass that won't quit. Or you may know me from Comedy Bang Bang. I play Dr. Sweet Chat and Ned Bellinella, the busiest man, or Irving Sardinus. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to say how much I'm gonna miss Scott now that he's dead. What? What do you mean he's not dead? Well, whose funeral was that? What? Who the hell is Gary? Wow, okay, well, I guess I want to wish Comedy Bang Bang a happy 15th anniversary. Wow, I always have the best time on CBB. It is so much fun to do, and Scott makes me feel warm and welcome and extra wet. So here's to another 15 years. Keep listening to Comedy Bang Bang wherever you get your podcasts. That's right, Ruba, they should go do it. Yes. They should, Ruba, right? Yes. Shouldn't they? No. What do you mean, no? Yes. That's what I'm saying. Go do. Yes, Bruba go do. Bruba go do. That's right, Bruba go do. Well, we say this term boogeyman, right? Um, and, you know, it's like a mythical creature, you know, that is really used to frighten kids. So if you look at like the Wikipedia definition of like what a boogeyman is, right? Um, But this is what he is. Like he is 
you know, as the kids are escaping down the river, he's, you know, he's close by, like he's right there. Like he can't escape him. He is a nightmarish creature who can exist in this world. And I think what's really interesting about this movie, going back to the religion of it all is here's somebody who is using religion to justify his own greed and his own perversions. Um, But at the end of the day, religion also prevails, right? Because the religious woman uh, at the end of the film is able to see through his charade, right? So it's like, oh, a true, you know, a true person of faith is able to see past uh, someone who is doing something inorganically or, 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 you know, and look, I think you can make the same argument. And I think that that's what Robert Mitchum does with Shelley Winters in this movie. He's like, you're not, you're not really this, you know, like he, he kind of shuns her and, 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 and really like, berates her for who she is. So it's interesting that religion can be something where you can always get one step above someone else because you're like, well, I'm pure of faith and I can see and I can see through you. He does that and it was done to him. So I think it's a really interesting thing about religion and individualism in religion. Like if you are saved, you are better than somebody else or you can see something more clearly. I, It's a not a complex idea, but I think it's an idea of just really how religion can be co-opted by anyone and for good and for bad. Yeah. Co-opted, I think is the exactly the right word because, you know, we see his effect on two different women who, you know, would consider themselves religious. Um, starting with, you know, Icy Spoon, which is such a wonderful name. Like the woman who owns the soda shop where Shelly Winters mm-hmm. works, the woman that he delivers like that fancy, left-hand, right-hand monologue to? Ah, little lad, you're staring at my fingers. Would you like me to tell you the little story of right-hand, left-hand? The story of good and evil? H-A-T-E. It was with this left hand that old brother Cain struck the blow that laid his brother low. L-O-V-E. You see, these fingers, dear hearts, these fingers has veins that run straight to the soul of man. The right hand, friends, the hand of love. Now watch, and I'll show you the story of life. These fingers, dear hearts, is always a warring and a tugging, one against the other. Now watch them. Old brother left hand. Left hand hates a fighting, and it looks like love's a goner. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hot dog loves a winning. Yes, sirree. It's love that won, and old left hand hate is down for the count. Which, by the way, what is, he's like arm wrestling himself. Like, it's such a silly analogy. She's like, oh, wow, I've never heard it put that way before. You're like, what is this? But he didn't actually say anything. He just made his hands squeeze together and fight for a long time. And then he contrived a win without any reason. It's sort of like he just declares yes. that love wins. And she's I rewound like, wow, it that's because so I'm like, deep. What did I, what did I miss? Like, because when, uh, when you see that speech as it's kind of done multiple times in different movies, I, I'll just say, most famously, uh, in Do the Right Thing. Yeah. Let me tell you the story of right hand, left hand. It's a tale of good and evil. Hey, it was with this hand that Cain iced his brother. Love. These five fingers, they go straight to the soul of man. The right hand, the hand of love. The story of life is this. Static. 
One hand is always fighting the other hand. And the left hand is kicking much ass. I mean, it looks like the right hand love is finished. But hold on, stop the presses. The right hand's coming back. Yeah, he got the left hand on the ropes now. That's right. Yeah. Ooh, it's a devastating right and hate is dirt. Down. Ooh, ooh, left hand hate KO'd by love. So seeing that movie first and hearing that, I was like, wait, wait, I, I was so confused. I, I thought like, like, I think Spike Lee has done the better version, but has he done the better version or is Radio Rahim actually a truly enlightened person? And Robert Mitchum is just kind of a bullshit artist. And even his story is a little bit mixed because as you see him do that speech again, he's like, oh, did I tell you my, my story? It's like he's got like his routine and it sounds good. It's like one of those things that when you are on the car ride home, you're like, wait, wait a second. What did he say? Yeah, about wait, the huh? yeah that's what yeah. I feel like. But it's, it's impressive like in the moment. Yeah, it's yeah. theatrical, but it's totally empty. He doesn't actually say anything about it. And that's what I think is so funny. Like, here's this guy who doesn't say anything that deep. He just quotes the Bible and sounds really impressive. And he absolutely convinces all of these religious people around him that he's a good man because he just parrots the right things. I mean— this family, Shelley Winters' family, they are not immediately sold on him. You know, he shows up at the house and, like, the kid immediately has that, like, you you almost see in the kid's face that he can hear the soundtrack that the movie does. You know, that kind of, like, dun, dun, dun. And one day, this king got taken away by some bad men. And before he got took off, he told his son to kill anyone who tried to steal his gold. And before long, the bad men came back and... He's totally unnerved by Mitchum right away. He has like a, yeah. a spider sense. And Shelley, Shelley Winters is not convinced uh, about him either. But this religious woman, Icy Spoon, is like, no, 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 he's good. And tries to like snowball over all of her hesitation. That feller's just aching to settle down with some nice woman to make a home for himself. I see it's awful soon after Ben's passing. If ever I saw a sign from heaven. John don't like him much. Pearl dotes on him. The boy worries me. I know it's silly, but it's like there's something still between him and his dad. What he needs is a dose of sauce. No, there's something else. What? The money. I declare, Willa Harper, you let that money haunt you to your grave. I see. I would love to be satisfied that Harry Pa don't think I got that money hid somewhere. You come right out and ask that man of God, Mr. Powell, clear that evil mud out of your soul. John Pearl, come along here and get some fudge. I mean, this woman who's like, you got to get married. You got to do this. If you don't marry this guy, somebody will. I mean, she is she she is the enabler who makes it work. Like, Robert Mitchum wouldn't be winning over Shelley Winters if not for this enabler character pushing her to say yes to him. And pushing it, pushing for him be on, like, this nonsense hand argument that doesn't make any sense at all. There's just this interesting element in this movie about, you know, manipulation. You know, it's so much about, like, his ability to manipulate people based on what they want to believe about him because he quotes the Bible— and meanwhile, there's like the drunk guy living in the boathouse who, when he sees a dead body, is like, I better not tell anybody I see a dead body because they're going to think I killed him because I'm the drunk. Everybody right. assumes that the religious guy is innocent and the drunk worries that everybody's going to assume that he's guilty. And this ice cream family, they're just, 
you know, at one point they're like, man, these gypsies knifed a farmer and stole a horse. And then you know in the next cut that it's Robert Mitchum, but they're blaming some foreign people, you know, because they don't want to think that the religious guy from their area is the bad person. And that that element, I'm like, oh man, they're just talking about today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think what's really interesting about Shelley Winters is, you know, we... We don't know much about her character, but she is a really interesting type of person to come across this man because she's exactly the type of person that might fall into a cult-like situation. You know, she's so quick to... And look, the whole town kind of overnight, you know, um, falls in love with Robert Mitchum in this town. but But she wants her salvation through him. And that's really interesting to me, like this idea to, you know, throw her maternal instincts to the wind. She sees him threaten, uh, you know, her children and she doesn't think twice. She just wants to be saved. And that to me, like religion is a tough topic to talk about. I think that there's very few films that get made that, that really talk about it in a way because you can get a boycott on it so quickly, unless it's, unless it's something like, and this is, I'm dating myself, but like passion of the Christ, you know, or a a faith based film. Like if you're not a hundred percent for it or showing something with it, you like, but being critical of it is a tricky thing to pull off. It's the same way that concussion, not that that's the best movie, but the minute concussion comes out, it's like, well, no, it's, it's about the NFL being bad. We're going to like, that movie didn't even exist. You know, it's like, it can kind of be just eaten up. And I can also see this, and 1955 being something that people don't want to hear. They don't want to even examine about how it can make you not even as a bad person, but to fall in without questioning. Like, why are you doing this? Because you want to be saved? Because you want to be fixed? Because you want to be healed? It's like a quick fix. Religion is a quick fix. And he's showing that through Shelley Winters. And I think that's what's so tragic about her character. She is good, but she yeah. just immediately wants to be saved. Yeah, he does this like almost cruel visual trick with her, right? Because she agrees to marry Robert Mitchum. And so on their wedding night, you know, we see her getting ready to go into the bedroom and he gives us one of the most beautiful shots I've ever seen of Shelley Winters. You know, like when she's alone in the bathroom, thinking about romance, thinking that she might've found love again, he shoots her with so much love, and it's nice to see her get this much love, right? I mean, because remember when we saw yeah. Shelley Winters in Place in the Sun, where it's like she plays a character sort of like this, the girl that you might get what you want out of her, and then she dies, and you're like, well, who cares? I'll let her die. You know, poor Shelley Winters, she's always playing this role. She did that ro- almost the exact same role in Lolita, too. She's like, um, Hubbard Hubbard marries her, and then maybe kills her, and then like takes her daughter and runs away. She also plays a similar character like this in The Big Knife, a movie that I just saw, which is wonderful, 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 wonderful. But yeah, so you get this shot of her and you're like, thank you, camera, for like appreciating Shelley Winters. Look how happy she is. She's heading out into the bedroom to be with her new husband. She reaches into his pocket and finds his knife. And she's like, oh, men. You know, just like, oh, that's (laughs) what they do, men. And then when she tries to consummate, He gives her this mean, mean speech. Look at yourself. What do you see, girl? You see the body of a woman 
the temple of creation and motherhood. You see, the flesh of Eve that man since Adam has profaned. That body was meant for begetting children. It was not meant for the lust of men. As he's telling her to look at herself in the mirror, the camera switches on you and it's like, and it makes her, this woman who just looked beautiful in that same outfit, look like awkward and pathetic and her toes are like pointed in towards each other. And he takes away all of this beautiful light that he just gave her and you see her shrink. And then, then, and then like right after that, when she goes into sermonizing, it's like terrifying. You almost want her to be like, no, 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 no. I'm going to fight back about this. But that character doesn't have that spine to fight back against, you know, this emotional abuse. So instead she becomes a liar. Like that sermon she immediately gives when she is his preacher's wife, everything she's saying as a holy woman sermonizing is a straight up lie. Amen. You have all sinned. Which one of you can say, as I can say, that you drove a good man to murder because I kept a hound in him for perfume and clothes and face paint. And he slew two human beings. And he come to me and he said, take this money and buy yourself the clothes and the paint. But brethren, brethren, oh, that's where the Lord stepped in. That's where the Lord stepped in. Yes. to that man you take that money and you throw it in the river in the river, in the river! and I guess you know what's so interesting to me is compare her to to Lillian Gish at the end you know Lillian Gish also religious also a single woman you know raising children by herself they are you know they are flip sides of a coin right like they 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 are they are very similar yeah and they've yet, both made mistakes like we hear from Lillian Gish that like her son won't talk to her you know yeah. so like you know they've they're not perfect women which I appreciate yeah it's interesting because I think the movie doesn't want to make a statement like oh you know single women who take care of children need a man and and they are unflappable like they they treat women they give them this i think a more dynamic personality but also don't uh paint them as one thing because they are very different in the way they handle Robert Mitchum coming and um and what they need from him and i think that that is you know to see a movie in 1955 to treat women as complex as this was surprising to me as well. Like they're not like, it's not just very cut and dry. Like a, a man doesn't come at the end of the day to rescue the kids. Don't foil it. It doesn't become like a home alone, you know, kind of an episode where they do save lady. And I'll get, of course, uh, Lillian Gish, you know, has been around for a very long time. I mean, right. Like from one of the, uh, the earliest uh, silent films when we did uh, intolerance. Yeah. Uh, the oldest movie we've ever done on Unspooled. Besides a trip to the moon. Yeah. And she, like, you know, so it was great to see her. But I just, I do think. She's almost playing feminist, like a similar character. She's like, she in that is, movie, yeah. she's like the image of eternal motherhood, kind of alone in the heavens, rocking this cradle. And here she's introduced just in that kind of same way, you know, face in the sky, floating around with these children, looking very ah. surreal as the kids are singing that creepy song, creepy song about how fear is a dream. Creepy. 
That was so un- all the songs are unnerving in this movie, right? Like, and they're supposed, and then I was supposed to be so creepy. Um, but uh, but I guess what I'm saying from a feminist perspective, it's really interesting too because this is a movie where, and I think like most horror films, right? Like horror films have this idea of the the virgin wins, right? The virgin is the one who is to be able to be the final girl and, and defeat the bad guy. And I think that there's something interesting here as well about sexuality and this confrontation, you know, of, of, uh, of good and, and evil and, and what that brings. Like, you know, yes, uh, Lillian Gish is, uh, you know, I think that she is probably a little bit more pure. Uh, so that allows her to maybe help defeat and stay strong against this villain, you know? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if there's, if if those lines are in there. She's definitely more grounded, right? Like there's, she's not a sweet pushover. I mean, the second these like kids show up on her, you know, front lawn, I guess, I don't know if you can call a boat a front lawn, but as soon as they show up, she like grabs a reed and she's like, I will switch you if you don't come into the house and like take a bath. I mean, she's not, she's not the kindest person all around, but she, she's strong in herself in a way that I think you don't see in Shelley Winters. She knows, she has a sense of right and wrong that at least belongs to her. Yeah. If that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think um, that like her groundedness, I mean, it, it makes sense that she's like a person who's like planting vegetables and selling vegetables because she just seems like she is rooted in the world. Yeah. And, and again, that's why I do feel like there is, you know, this idea in the movie that religion isn't all bad. I do think that this movie does walk that line, right? It can be used for bad, you know, it can be used for manipulation, but like, and I think that that's maybe the way they skirt some of these issues because you could look at it from one perspective and say, Oh my gosh, well, the religious person saves the day. She, you know, sees the devil and is able to take the devil out. Um, and at the same time, I think it talks about the dangers of just believing anyone who says they're religious, right? So it's a way of like kind of having your cake and eating it too. It's like, don't believe everybody, like do your own research. But at the same time, you know, I think this movie does champion that her backbone, her spine is given to her by her strong faith and belief. Well, yeah. And what I like about her belief is that it has also, I think, folded into it, you know, one of the things that Jesus talked about a lot. Like she she does not have, where Shelley Winters is sort of screaming about fallen women, and, and so is Robert Mitchum, you know, I want to stab them all, stab all the burlesque dancers. She is living with that teenage girl, you know, Ruby, who in the book is like, Eve is much more clearly sexually active, like sneaking out at night to sleep with the wrong people. 
Mm-hmm. And in this movie, even though like Ruby tells Robert Mitchum that the kids live there, Ruby is like very much under his thrall. You know, Ruby almost blows it for this family several times and like still is mooning after Robert Mitchum, even after he like tries to attack them in their own house. What Lillian Gish's character does is she like still continues to bless Ruby with forgiveness. Ruby, you didn't have money to buy this. You whipped me. When did I ever? This man at the drugstore, he gave me... The drugstore? Miss Cooper, I've never been to sewing lessons all them times. What you been up to, Ruby? I've been out with men. Child. You were looking for love, Ruby, in the only foolish way you knew how. We all need love, Ruby. I lost the love of my son. I found it with you all. You're gonna grow up to be a strong, fine woman, and I'm gonna see to it that you do. This gentleman weren't like them. He'd just give me a book and buy me an ice cream. Now, who was this? He didn't ask me for nothing. What'd you talk about? Pearl and John. John and Pearl? I found that scene so emotional because, like, we've been on this tear lately of watching movies where, like, women do bad things and people are like, kill her, kill her, kill her. You know, there's a version of, like, this movie where, like, Ruby is the girl who lets Robert Mitchum into the house. And then they're like, well, Ruby will die at the end because we're so mad that she got these kids in trouble. And instead, this film is like, Ruby, you just want love. We understand. And we, you know, we get it. And you're going to grow up to be better. I mean, can you imagine if somebody had just gotten to tell Glenn Close that in Fatal Attraction? You just wanted love. I get it, man. Like, that is a, that is grace that has not been shared on most women in movies. And I find it so emotional. Well, you know, I I also think it's like, there's something about... The allure of danger, right? It it the the pull into something that feels not safe, you know, and and you make these decisions that aren't right. Because I, I even think at the end, the young boy who has been the most suspicious of Robert Mitchum, right? The the mm. one that Baby is, Gosling? Doesn't he just look like Gosling? Maybe it's because <laughs> he's just like Gosling in the notebook if the overalls. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh but the the idea that like this boy who has been the most against him from the minute they meet uh, is kind of overtaken at the end by seeing him, uh, you know, taken down, right? Like it just... Um, right. What you know, mean when he like really... gets that, when he's finally arrested this guy that has been like chasing him and he he almost breaks down because it's like, it reminds him too much of seeing... His dad, it's like, a, it's a flashback to his, watching his dad get arrested. Why didn't you call us before now? Didn't want your dirty shoes, tracking up with clean floors. Is that him, ma'am? Yes. Mind where you shoot, boys. There are children here. Harry Powell, you're under arrest for the murder of Willow Harper. Drop that knife, Powell. Don't. 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 <laughs> here, here. Yeah, and I think it just talks about like the, the idea of trauma, right? Like it, like in that moment, he doesn't want the same thing to happen to this 
man or it brings up a, a feeling, but it's like there's nothing there that connects him to this um this person. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of fascinated by that that last moment because this allure of dangerous people. Like we were, you know, there can be sympathy for this character who is a complete and utter, uh, you know, uh, villainous murderer. Like we, we don't have that for Glenn Close at the end. We don't feel that sympathy. And I think there's a moment there. It's like, oh well, poor guy, right? Like, or the the family is feeling like poor guy. Yeah, the family is feeling like that, and it's like this family that's been the most hurt by him. You know, this poor kid John, like Robert Mitchum, killed his mom. Would definitely have killed him if he had a chance to kill him. Was trying to make him break his last promise he made his dad before his dad was executed by the state. And when it when it finally comes down to the moment where this kid finally has something over on Robert Mitchum, where he can like turn to him on the stand and say, "That is the guy," I I point him out execute this man, the kid doesn't do it. The kid like turns away from being that accuser who, you know, would be that chip insisting that Robert Mitchum will get executed. In contrast that to Icy Spoon, who like goes from saying, you got to marry this guy, marry this guy, don't be dumb, marry this guy, to leading the lynch mob for that wants to kill him. Lynch him, lynch him, Bluebeard. 25 wives. And he killed every last one of them. It's the people of Marshall County. Bluebeard, come on. Yeah. I mean, that is a woman who is not turning the other cheek. That is a woman who is not showing any sort of forgiveness. She's She goes just from one extreme to another. Love that Christian man, kill that man. And like nothing in between. No sort of sense of gray at all. I even think you see this weird thing with the hangman being excited to to kill this guy was, you know, it's it's such an interesting movie about small town and mob mentality. And, uh, you know, I think it says so much more about how, you know, this this town falls so quickly in love and they can fall so quickly out of love. And, and you go and this is, you know. Internet culture, it's 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 everything. Like this, yeah. You're, we love you, we hate you, and then and uh, and they just are quick to move on. You know, yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it, this movie I think is a better embodiment of what Robert Mitchum is pretending to say about his knuckles than that actual speech, because mm. this is a movie that is, you know, on the one hand about Robert Mitchum and like this like terrifying hate he has for everybody. And it's fascinating, but what we see in like the little kids' trauma about this in in Lillian Gish's ability to forgive people is the love fighting back. You see love make a stand in this film too. Like this movie ends with love. It, it's almost like this movie sells you on enjoying the hate part of the film mm-hmm. and then also wants you to choose love at the end. It, it's wrestling with itself because you don't see any of that love at all in Fatal Attraction. I mean, when that movie no. ends, you're like, I don't even see this couple staying together, even though she just murdered for him. Like, love does not win in that film. But I think, I think Lawton, as many shots as he takes on hypocrisy, believes in love. It's like he, he. I think that's what makes this film remarkable to me is that well, it I believes mean, in eval and good at the same time. Well, the idea that the the you know that. Lillian Gish gives the daughter who, you know, keeps on falling in and out of this, you know, 
basically almost screwing over the whole family. The fact that she like gives her that that gift at the end, like she still loves her, right? That that's like that's that kind of is a beautiful telling moment at the end. Like this idea, like she's like, you know, um, you know that like you will not. I'm not going to disown you, right? Like you, you actually yeah. feel safer with her. And then the, you know, the way the town reacts to them post trial, it's just like, it's almost like the idea is stay the course, which I would also argue is something that in the business of acting and directing is something that Lawton probably has gone through as well. You know, this idea of like, just keep your nose down, keep on doing the work and things will change and things will go forward. But if you react to every little detail and you change your position every moment, you'll never be able to get a good footing because you're always looking for the next place to grab and you're not just concentrating on the ongoing uphill. No, you're right. And now that I think about it, how interesting is it that this movie doesn't end with a scene that you'd probably expect, which is the thorough comeuppance of Robert Mitchum. It -hmm. doesn't end with Robert Mitchum getting executed. You know, the way that Faye Dunaway gets killed, the way that, you know, Glenn Close gets killed. We don't know for sure if he gets executed. We see the jailers take him away from the lynch mob and save his life. And and so he kind of disappears in the last few minutes. And the movie's like, you know what? It's not about him. It's not about us cheering to see him get his punishment. We're ending on love. We're ending on Lillian and this family, what's going to happen to them now, to this idea of hope. And that is a striking choice in a film that I think in most hands would have ended completely differently. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a it is kind of taking the bloodthirsty nature out of it, right? Because you don't get to see the kill. Because I think when you see the kill, it's this. It's the end of Starship Troopers, right? He's afraid. And then they're shoving the thing up. It's, you know, it's like, you know, it's like they want you to see this. You don't really see, you don't see Robert Mitchum in the court. You don't see, or you don't, you know, you don't see much of him after he's arrested. Like his face is down. And it, and I think that that's, it's more about the repercussions of what he did and how it affected these people and how they kind of survive after that, you yeah, know. And, um, and, yeah. and even as a villain, he keeps making him kind of goofy. Throughout right. the whole time. Like when he's chasing the kids as they're getting into the boat and he like falls in the mud, he gives that ridiculous little moan. <laughs> or, or wait, even better. There's like that like Looney Tunes kind of scream he gets when Lillian Gish shoots yeah, the gun Yeah, I thought that was such face. an odd choice. I didn't get it's that. It's like, so silly. And it's so funny because like I was thinking, oh man, it's like a like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. But actually, what, one minute before we even hear an actual bunny scream in this movie. It's a hard world for little things. There's all just this like screaming, animal screaming, silly screaming, animal imagery. They make him a little cartoonish, which, you know, I was reading at the time Lillian Gish had an issue with. She was like, Make him full-on evil, full-on scary. He's capable of doing that. Don't make him ridiculous. Don't make him funny. And Lawton took the point of, you know, I don't want him to be like a superhuman villain, even though he feels like it in so many scenes, even in like, the, you know, like we were talking about, like the way he rides the horse through the middle of the night. He was like, I also want him to be a human villain where you understand that 
this is what humans are capable of doing. Well, I think that this is something that we use so much in horror films now too, right? The idea that like you can't wrap your head around it. Like, oh, well, are they nice? Are they not nice? And like, and that, that different levels. And I think that Glenn Close has that too. Like, are you sad? Are you upset? Are you angry? Like, you know, it's like you can't quite wrap your head around how to deal with them. They're not monolithic. And that, that scream, because I guess is also the code too. I'm like, did she actually shoot him or is he just fucking with her? I thought he was just fucking with her, but they can't really show that he was hit with buckshot. Like, you know, it's like there's, there's a lot going on there, but like, it's almost like his scream is taunting her. No, that's true. And it's funny, this idea of like him and her being put together as these contrasts because, you know, like throughout this whole movie, we have him singing his song, you know, about leaning, leaning. It's like his like theme song that we keep hearing. And there's that moment I love where he's outside their house waiting to come inside and, you know, kidnap the kids, kill the kids, whatever he's planning on doing. He starts singing. And in response, Lillian starts singing at him and they're harmonizing together. I want to listen to that for a second. What a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arms. Lean on Jesus, Leaning on Jesus, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning on Jesus, leaning on Jesus, leaning on the everlasting arms. You know what I think is so remarkable about that scene? is it's like they're singing the same spiritual, but you realize that he's made up a bunch of the words and that Lillian actually knows what this song is about, which is such a a twist. You know, it's like this song belongs to him. It's been belonging to him this whole movie. He's been singing it everywhere. It's really his catchphrase. And then at the end, you're like, no, this song doesn't belong to him and he's never had it right. He's never had his spiritual faith right. And this is how the song really goes. And it feels like it's just a course correction to this whole idea of like actual faith versus show faith. Mm-hmm. By the way, while we're talking about Robert Mitchum um, singing, did you know that just a couple years after this, he released a Calypso album? What? Oh, yeah. Here's a little taste. Last night I went to a party. And I met Miss Meringigen She said, oh come here Bobby And dance Meringue with me I said to her, baby, I don't know All I can do is Calypso she That's said, amazing, by the way. By the way, as a fan of interesting, weird albums uh, like Telly Savalas's album, which I just bought on vinyl, uh, I'm now going to go on eBay and buy that right now. <laughs> Do you know, though, the first time I think you and I might have heard Robert Mitchum's voice? When? Okay, kid, this is a flashback to our youth. 
the clink hammers dropped by unexpectedly, it was beef and pasta primavera. For the first ever straight A report card, it was stir-fried beef fajitas. And for the upset victory in the bowling league tourney, it was bistro steak subs. Of course, it's not that you need a special occasion to appreciate dinners like these. All you really need is half an hour, and your average Wednesday will do just fine. Beef, it's what's for dinner. Oh, yes, uh, yes, of course, I remember that, yes. Yeah, I definitely did not know who Robert Mitchum was when I heard those ads. But now, now I definitely know. Do you know who does those ads uh, more recently? Who picked it who? up after he died? Who? Let me see if you can recognize this voice. Beef burritos, beef fajitas, beef tacos. Do you see where I'm going with this? Beef. It's what's for dinner. Why, yes, that is America's favorite cowboy, Sam Elliott. Whoa, yes, of course. And then I think uh, James Garner, too, right? Oh, does he do them too? He used to, I think James Garner used to do pork. It's America. Maybe, or there was somebody, I think he did. <laughs> did he, he do the other them. white meat? <laughs> yeah, he might've done the other white meat. Man, I want you to be the voice of something. What, would you be the voice of soy riso? I'll take it. I'll take some soy riso. Maybe Impossible Burger. I would do it all. I would like, you know, like, let's get in there. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, uh, by the way, I just Googled the Robert Mitchum album. Uh, not, not as cheap as you might think. Um, really? He has a couple albums out. Uh, he has two. Uh, one seems more like the Clipso one. It's called uh, Robert Mitchum Clipso Is Like So. Um, and, <laughs> and the other one is... Um, <laughs> that man Robert Mitchum sings. Uh, that man Robert Mitchum sings. <laughs> that is an the, amazing title. I love that. Oh my gosh! I want this somebody might, to steal that. That woman be Beyonce sings. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, you know that like um, in the early '90s they did a TV movie version of Night of the Hunter starring somebody that we just talked about on this show, Richard Chamberlain of the Three Musketeers. Oh. Richard Chamberlain is a man of belief. My mission brings me here. But even the brightest angels fall from grace. Preaching. Murderous lies. There ain't no clergy or God. A wolf in sheep's clothing leading the lambs to slaughter in the network premiere of The Night of the Hunter. Get ready to see hell. I had to play that. I haven't seen that movie. It seems a little bit crazy. I think- yeah, I, I bet it doesn't really carry over because I think what makes this movie special is the way it's shot, who's in it. And I know Roger Ebert compared it to Silence of the Lambs. And I think that that's actually a pretty apt comparison because it's a um, it is about trauma. It is about imagery. It is about a villain who is not um, physically imposing, but can mentally um you know, uh, torture you or, you know, or have this vibe of coming at you. And I, I like those two movies in conversation. I think that as a double feature is a really fun way of looking at it. I hear that. I mean, I hear they're trying to do a new, another remake of it now. They haven't cast it from what I hear. The only person I can think of who would be a terrific Robert Mitchum just right out of the, out of the gate. And I think it's just maybe because I think they look alike. Vince Vaughn. Well, yeah, I mean, well, I think Vince Vaughn did that in Clay Pigeons, which is an old movie. I don't know why I'm remembering that right now, but it's about Joaquin Phoenix as a sheriff who is basically hunting a serial killer. 
and um, and then becomes friends with a serial killer played by Vince Vaughn. And he has the same kind of energy here, a very like charming <laughs> cowboy, but also incredibly uh, scary. It's a good, I, I remember it being good. I remember it being good, although now I'm looking on IMDb and they gave it a 6.6 out of 10. So maybe it's not as good as I remember. I'm curious. You have you have made me curious. I mean, this movie, though, I think has proven to be hugely, hugely, hugely inspirational on just like, I think, our clique of filmmakers working today. I mean, one of the biggest people who has been like influenced by this movie is, of course, Guillermo del Toro. Like, he once went on the Criterion channel talking about everything he loves about this movie. And one of the things he really pointed out is that we need to talk about is the scene where you see Shelley Winters' dead body under the ocean. But also because it contains some of the most lyrical and poetic images and passages in any genre film. The hair floating in the water, I've been trying to do that for 25 years. It's a Rousseau painting. It's like a beautiful painting and the surreal fact that she's laying there in a very beautiful, peaceful way, but it's her corpse. The wandering of the children through the woods is pure Brothers Grimm. Yeah. I mean, that scene is gorgeous. The music, the music, we, I don't think I've talked enough about the score. The score is beautiful, especially right here. Absolutely. And, and we're talking about a movie that was shot on in 36 days, and this took two days to film, you know, with this dummy. And it, it really is, um, or mannequin, you know, I know I want to use the correct term for it. Um, <laughs> the, uh, but the idea like that, that sequence, and it, look what they show you, they show you so much without showing you anything. And it's such a haunting, haunting image. Yeah, it lasts for so long. It's so beautiful and peaceful, and creepy. And there's that little bit of movement of the hook coming down and accidentally, like, connecting to the car. It is just gorgeous. Although it does, you know, make sense that when people saw this film, it was so unusual, so beautiful, so strange, that the reviews, they actually reminded me a lot of how we review a movie like this today that, like, comes out, and it's so striking that everybody kind of goes hard on it. There's a thing that really happens with films where, like, if a film seems like it has low ambitions and it's fun and dumb, us critics will be like, eh, it's fine. But if right. a movie aspires to be something big, we critics will be like, no, 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 let me tear it apart. And I do, I do hate that about us, but it's very hard. And I find myself prone to it, too. It's like if something is aspiring to be truly artistic and wonderful – Critics do take out their knives because it gives them something to write about. You know, they're like excited to actually really get to write about something. So when this movie came out, everybody went hard on it. First off, nobody liked the ending. Nobody liked any of the love stuff. Nobody was into any of that. They only liked the creepy evil part at the beginning. Yes. But all of the critics had to make a point of being like, eh, we'll see. You can impress me. Like Variety said, you know, the relentless terror of Davis Grug's story got away from this translation of Night of the Hunter. So many scenes are productions of camera angles, symbolism, shadows, lighting effects, to the extent that story points are rendered nebulous. The camera flourishes interfere with what may have been a competent script, and that Robert Mitchum intermittently shows some depth, but in instances where he's crazed with lust for the money, there's barely adequate conviction. 
Sight and Sound called it genuinely strange. Charles, Charles Lawton sometimes strives too hard for effect. When is occasionally too conscious of influences, it doesn't altogether, as they say, come off. But it is a film of extremely individual flavor, and its daring, its indifference to convention, make it uniquely surprising for Hollywood production today. And Film Culture wrote a review that kind of broke my heart a little bit. They said, it is not a success. It is, however, an impressive failure, and certainly one of the year's most interesting films. Most of the screen images seem pretentious, but often they are genuinely striking. The Night of the Hunter is frequently bad, but it is never less than interesting. Wow. Lawton's next film should be of major importance. But because of reviews like this, he never made a next film. Well, Aww. do you believe that you think that, that this, that, or he just got fed up with the process? And because uh, he did say he wanted to go back to theater. But uh, what I mean, you know, I don't know. Like, what do you think? I mean, is it. Is it seemed it? to really break his heart. Like okay. Elsa Lancaster in her autobiography, she writes a lot about this and how much it just, it hurt him that he had worked so hard to make something interesting. And people are like, eh, it's pretentious. That it just, it really cut him to the core. And he didn't live long enough to see it, you know, be voted number two by Calle de Cinema. And I mean, he, and people say he kind of died a broken man. Maybe this is part of that too. Not that I'm reveling in that, but I'm just saying, but that idea that like these you know, when you make something that you feel is so good, you can't get ahead of it is, is, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's like it's, he put yeah. everything into this and they were like, it's too much. And he was like, well, that's everything. And that's the kind of movie I want to make. But so I- here, here's what I'll say. Robert Mitchum at the end of his career said that Lawton was the favorite director of his entire career. And this is his favorite movie. And Shelley Winters, I think, also says that this is one of her favorite performances. You know who probably wouldn't say that are the two children, because apparently he was real shit, especially to the girl. I think he liked the boy, but hated the girl. And uh, it seemed like that was was not a great... Uh, this is maybe at the time still when people were, were uh, kind of smoking around kids and, you know... Uh, they were shut the slapping up. kids in the stomach if the kid wasn't acting like they were in enough pain. That was happening yeah. on this set. And also, one of the weird things I noticed reading this review was how hard all the critics were on all of the women. Like, all of the women. Like, everybody found the little daughter to be horrible, annoying, obnoxious. And I was like, she just seems like a real kid to me. And they're like, that kid, fuck her. She's terrible. They One of the reviews even said the burlesque dancer was, like, ugly and tired. And I was like, what are Jeez. you talking about? No, she's not. It's very bizarre. You know what? Every now and then... You're going to get this kind of reaction. I'm glad that I got to see this movie. I'm glad that we put this on our list. If you have not seen this movie, I think it's really worth watching. Um, And there's so much behind it that I think you see influences on so many directors. I think Martin Scorsese, obviously very, um, very much affected by this movie too. You know, a lot of, I think this is a movie that a lot of 70s directors, people who came of that age were influenced by because it was so different. Very much. And it's free on YouTube if you don't mind ads. So no. go for By the way, it. Oh, yeah. I actually have the YouTube subscriptions. I watch that whole shit for free. Oh, look at you. No ads. And then I watched uh, uh, White Squall after it. Perfect pairing. No, um, <laughs> but Amy, we are continuing our series about villains um, next week. And it's hard to top. I mean, we've gone from Faye Dunaway to Glenn Close to Robert Mitchum. Where do we want to go next? Who... Do we want to explore as far as a villain? Because right now, I think each villain is slightly different. Each one of them foreboding and scary in their own right. But where could we go after these three titans? 
I mean, I definitely want to keep going with villains who are so charismatic that they make you feel all screwed up inside. Well, if you're talking about charismatic, there is one actor who I think is incredibly charismatic, who pulled off one of the scariest villain roles. And I know we talked about this maybe in another episode. And I I made a very big declaration. It's hard to kind of believe this actor because we like him so much. But I think this is something that makes us so conflicted. And I'm talking about Denzel Washington. And I'm talking about the movie Training Day. I feel like that is a great villain performance because, again, he's charismatic. You don't know which side to fall on. Is he right? Is he wrong? I mean, this is this is a that could be a good uh, a good All one right. for us to be ta- discuss. Um, I'm in. I'm in. I've actually never seen Training Day, so really, uh, uh-uh. uh, no, I missed it. I watched Training Day two nights in a row when I was trying to put down my firstborn, um, and it was uh, it actually brought me. The Calm, a movie that was really disturbing to me, brought me calm in those moments. I don't know why. Um, I was like, well, at least I'm not in the car with with Denzel Washington. But I think this is a great performance and a great villain and a different type of villain, too. A villain that maybe hides behind a badge instead of a, a Bible. So I think Ooh. this is interesting. So, uh, Amy, let's take a listen to the trailer for Training Day. In the next 24 hours, the only thing more dangerous than the line being crossed. Today's a training day, Officer Hoy. It's your chance to give you a little taste of reality. You think you can handle it? Is the cop who has crossed it. I will do anything you want me to do. Will you? We'll see. If I was a dealer, you'd be dead by now. They build jails because of me. Judges have handed out over 15,000 man years of incarceration time based on my investigations. You got today and today only to show me who and what you're made of. You hear me? That's it. That's what I'm talking about. First day on the job, you hit a $3 million seizure. Police officer! Get away from the girl! No, no, no. We're not racking up arrests today. You let him go, Is right? that I not mean, justice? That's street justice. What's wrong with street justice? Oh, what? Just let the animals wipe themselves out. God willing. It can't be like this. Open your eyes. Can't you see? Police, we got a search warrant. Man, I didn't sign up for this. You think I'm crazy, right? You got the money. An easy fix. <laughs> you know what you're doing, son. We communicate and talk to me. Say it. I think you're a road cop. Learned a lot of things on these streets, boy. Good things and bad things too. I'm the police. King Kong ain't got nothing on me. <laughs> you never know. That's the point. Turn out to be a nice day, huh? It'll get darker. Guarantee you that. Training Day is available wherever you get your streaming films. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please check out our unspooled section of the Paul Shear Discord at uh, discord.gg slash Paul Shear. You can also check out our Facebook page, which is still going and great. And of course, our Instagram and our Twitter. We're there. We're keeping the conversation going. But I love the extra facts that we're getting. People send us great little tidbits about all the movies that we have been discussing 
What I'm saying is, reach out to us on social. We are there. We are ready for you. And uh, the show couldn't be made without our amazing production team. I'm talking about Josh Richmond and Devin Bryant, our engineer Ryan Connor, our intern Jacob Morton, who's also been cutting uh, some great uh, clips for us on social media, and of course, our MVP Molly Reynolds, always helping out with all of uh, research and things of that nature. Uh, you can follow us, like I said, on social media. You can visit us online uh, at our merchandise shop at tpublic.com slash unspooled. And we will see you next week for Training Day. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.